0: For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that's Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul, in these first opening portions of Colossians, wants to address the Colossian heresy. Like I said before, we don't know specifically what it is. It's a syncretistic type of heresy, That includes both the Judaistic way of thinking as well as some philosophy of the day, which is why you see both of those blended. We'll come to that in Colossians 2, where he's naming both Jewish tradition and he's naming tradition from the world. And as he's addressing it, what they're believing is that Christ isn't enough. They're believing that his accomplished work isn't enough, that they somehow need more. And so Paul, in addressing that, wants to proclaim the deity of Christ, wants to establish that he is the second person of the triune God. He calls him Christ twice in the opening phrases of Colossians, typically done once, though, and a few of the gospels done, or epistles done more than once. And here, as he calls him the firstborn, what I believe he's stating is that Christ, who is the second Adam, the perfect Adam, was actually the preexistent Adam, originally and perfectly, whom the earthly Adam was imaged after. I talked about that at length last week. That Christ, who is the second Adam perfectly, was the pre existing Adam, the eternal Adam, of whom the earthly Adam was actually imaged after. And he is eternally the Son. And he has made peace. In the hostility that we have with God, he's made peace. He is the way of peace to God. And it's by his blood that was shed on the cross. Verse 21. This is now the application of what Paul has just talked about in verses 15 to 20 that I looked at last week. So once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Note the language here alienated, enemies in your minds, evil behavior. Those are the three words that Paul uses here to describe us enemies, alienated, evil, enemies in your mind, the way you think. The philosophy, the ideology that you've accepted. And your evil behavior, the way you act, what you're doing. you See, sin separates us from God. It's abhorrent to God. It's repulsive to God. God has a gag reflex, if you will, when it comes to sin. God hates sin, and sin needs to be cast out of his presence. He just hates sin. I don't know if you've ever seen someone with a gag reflex. Ethan had one growing up. Amy and I, was this the first time we went to a restaurant after he was born? It was close. We went out for a meal. Ethan had just started on solid foods, and that night we learned that he was very intolerant of carrots and beef broth. And so we're sitting in this nice restaurant. Friends of ours happened to just show up while we're there, and they're sitting at a table adjacent to us, Steve and Pam Baxter. And so there they are. He was the pastor then of Flamborough Baptist. There we are. I put a spoon, or you did, I don't even remember now, into Ethan's mouth, and instantly and immediately projectile vomit, across our table, beyond our table, onto the carpet, hitting another portion of the restaurant. And Ethan just projectile vomited everywhere. And then we tried him because we had to figure out what does he and doesn't he like. And on a couple of occasions, my dad, who made us eat everything growing up, was like, well, the kid should eat his carrots. And on both occasions, Ethan puked, like just puked horrifically. Like just even something where he wouldn't know carrots was in it, like blended right in, hidden ethan would puke and finally we're at a family dinner we're all there ethan may have been for just over a year we're serving whatever someone's about to put carrots on his plate and my dad's like no i'll eat those carrots don't put anything like that on his plate we don't need that at the family dinner i know what happens gag reflex god has a gag reflex to sin god is so holy so perfect so pure so unblemished that's god Perfect in all that He is in His being and nature and character and actions. That's God. That sin is repulsive to Him. Rebelliousness is repulsive to Him. So much so that we're alienated from Him. That's because the wages of sin is death. I talked about that last week. How we we die as we die. The wage of sin being death, and we die psychologically. We die, we die physically. We actually physically die. We die spiritually. We die, we die mentally, we die relationally. We, we die in every aspect of our life. Every aspect of our life experiences death now because of this. And we're alienated from him. Enemies, because of our evil behavior. And yet God decided because he longs to have us be part of his kingdom that he would do something about it. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more... Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. Again, emphasizing God's enemies, God's enemies, God's enemies. So the way we thought about God was wrong. The way we thought about living was wrong. The way we thought about money was wrong. The way we thought about relationships was wrong. The way we thought about pleasure was wrong. The way we thought about everything was wrong because our lives had been in rebellion against God. And this is our condition and it's dire. It's dire. And then verse 22 of Colossians 1. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Christ is the reconciling one. That's why he is the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is able to reconcile us. I'm sure all of us have been in a situation where we've been in a relationship where something we have done has torn at that relationship. A spouse, a friend, a family member. And in that tearing, you realize that in order for there to be a repair, you need to go and apologize. You need to say you're sorry. You need to let them know that what you've done is wrong. You've sinned. And out of that, there can be a reconciling. Christ reconciles us to God, He is the only way to do it. His shed blood allows for that. Why is this the way? Because humanity had chosen to sin against God. Humanity had to suffer the punishment, the consequence for sin. But none of us could ever suffer the way we, we, we needed to um, in order to reconcile ourselves to God. So Christ cloaks his deity with humanity, comes and lives among us as the eternal son, having set aside some of the prerogatives of deity for a time, and in living among us, never sins. At the end of his life, the Bible tells us that he became our sin on the cross, and in becoming our sin on the cross, he gives his life up as the Father's wrath is poured out on him. And as the Father's wrath is poured out on him, he dies in our stead on our behalf. He is the perfect human who never did anything wrong, who's also fully God, who's able to take the punishment of the Father upon himself so that he can reconcile, so that we can be forgiven. Note, it says it here. We're reconciled through the death of his son. That's, that's, sorry, Romans 5. We're reconciled by Christ's physical body through death so that, note these words, we can present it as holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. Holy and without blemish is a reminder of the sacrificial system. Often there's some temple imagery that runs through the book of Colossians as the fullness of God Dwelling in Christ is the idea of even John 1, right? How there was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and he tabernacled or made his dwelling among us in the person of Christ. That's the idea here as well. The idea of temple language flows through Colossians at times. That holy in his sight without blemish reminds us of the sacrificial system. Only holy objects could be brought into God's sight. That was without blemish, that which was pure, the sacrificial system, demanded sacrifices that were that way. also free from accusation. What does that mean? That's probably reminiscent of the judgment day. This is how accomplished the work of Christ is. This is what is magnificent. The work of Christ is so incredibly accomplished that one day when we stand before the Father in judgment, he will not be able to accuse us of sin because he will see his son. That's why we'll be welcomed in. That's how saved you are. You are so saved that one day when you stand before the Father, one day when you're there, the one who knows everything about you, every thought, every action, every deed, whether it's out in the open or hidden, God who knows everything about you, One day you are so saved when you believed upon Jesus Christ as Savior, when he is the one that you have trusted. One day you are so saved that you will be regarded as holy without blemish and no accusation can come your way. That is an incredible word. The Father will be able to offer no accusation against you because the Son's shed blood will have covered you from your sin. And when he looks at you, he will see his Son. Is reconciled to you so that you could be presented holy without blemish and free from any accusation. Is that not great news? What an incredible God, what an amazing salvation. Hebrews 10:14 says it this way: "For by one sacrifice, he that's Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy." But while we're being made holy, while God is working in us by His Spirit so that we become more like Christ, He's actually made us perfect. What does that mean? Today, if you know Christ, today if you know who He is, if you've trusted Him as Savior, and something tragic was to happen to you on the way home, God forbid it. But you have been made perfect and you will stand before God as holy without blemish and no accusation will come your way. And if you live for the next 30 years on earth, some of you 50 or 60 or more, God will be making you holy, even though He's made you perfect. Back to verse 23 of Colossians 1. This is true if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. If you continue in your faith, established and firm. This is the tension you find in Scripture everywhere. That this gift that's offered, this grace that God gives is never to be taken for granted. So continue in your faith. Press on. Push on. Stand firm. The words that are used to establish and firm are, um, are, are architectural, foundational words. They're words of the foundation of a building. The building, when I saw the foundation of this building went in, the architectural design, it was firm, established secure now that's not always the case i read about building in shanghai that was being built in 2009 it collapsed 13 story building in shanghai because when they took the dirt from the building and placed it into the nearby riverbed it redirected the entire flow of the river so that it was now flowing under the building decaying the foundation of the building and the entire 13 story building in shanghai collapsed on neighboring buildings Full of people. Horrible, horrible accident. And then I began to read other stories of buildings whose foundations had collapsed. I won't get into all of them. There are, you can just Google it. Buildings whose foundations were not secure. And you can spend hours, I did not do that. But you can spend hours looking at what happens when a foundation isn't secure. Paul wants to remind the Colossian believers where the heresy is trying to tell them that they need to add other things to their salvation because Christ is not sufficient and enough that he is sufficient enough that in faith, what he has granted you is both established and firm. Don't move from it. It's the hope held out in the gospel. We have a hope, a hope, a a secure confidence that's given to us. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter. And so be alert, be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same type of sufferings. Stand firm. Stand firm when the ideology of the world about whatever it would be about God, about purpose, about pleasure, about money, about anything is different than what God has said. Stand firm. Stand firm when your own sinful nature and inclination wants to lead you to do that which is outside of the kingdom of God and the way you treat the poor and the way you forgive someone and the way you love a neighbor and the way you extend grace. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm when the enemy himself attacks you or part of his legion of demons. When they come at you, either through some type of demonic heresy. I was with a group of pastors on Friday. Right now, a pastor. This is a pastor navigating as his the whole denomination is making a shift on marriage, and as we all gathered to encourage him and to walk alongside of him, John Mahaffey looked at us all and said, "This is just simply demonic." We all agreed. This is exactly what this is. So, how do we walk alongside of him? He's now been placed under investigation by his own denomination for preaching truth according to God's word. Nothing but demonic. we all just like, that's true. This is what we all think. We just all nodded in agreement. Like, this is what this is. Stand firm. Stand firm when the enemy is attacking you. Stand firm when your own sinful nature is waging war against you. Stand firm when everything about the world is in opposition to the kingdom and what God has called us to. Stand firm. Paul says this. So this is the gospel that you have heard. That has been proclaimed to every creature under sea and of which under heaven, sorry, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. The gospel you've heard. That Christ's accomplished work is enough; that you will stand before the Father one day, holy, without blemish, and with no accusation being laid your way. This is the gospel. So stand firm in it. This is the gospel. Christ's work is sufficient. This is the gospel. He's able to save. This is the gospel. He who has begun a good work in you will see it through the completion. This is the gospel. Stand firm in it. God is able to do superabundantly more than anything you can ask for or imagine. This is the gospel. God is able. This is it. And so, this is the gospel that you have heard. It's being proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul says, This is the gospel that's being proclaimed. It's being proclaimed everywhere to all creatures. Romans 1, he says it this way, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. You know, in Canada right now, according to the Pew Research study um, in 2018, because the last census data we have is from 2011 around other religions in Canada, so it's really dated when you think of the migration coming to Canada and immigration. The Pew Research uh, uh, study did a, did, a, did a big study back in 2018. And they would suggest that right now in Canada, nearly 8% of Canada is either Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, or Buddhist. But 8% of the Canada popu- Canada's population. That's nearly 3 million people. Now, I know people who get angry about that. I see this as a door that God's given us for opportunity to share his grace with everyone. That people who had never been able to hear the gospel before, people that were in closed countries, where with Deidre, we can't even at times speak of where she will be going or what she'll be doing or use her last name. I forgot to mention this morning that we actually moved. The people that were online saw something different when we were talking again today. Where she's going is so closed. That because of that, we are able, uh, here in Canada to share the gospel with people that are coming from every culture and every custom and every religion. They become our neighbors. They become the people around us, the colleagues at work. They become people that we see day in and day out in other places. And we have the chance to share the gospel with them. It is the hope. It is the hope. Paul talks about the extent to which he will go to do that. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says this, Though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that all, by all possible means, some might be saved. This is part between 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, where Paul is talking at length about uh, about disputable matters and what that looks like. And in this portion, Paul says, you know what? I'm willing to give anything up if it's a barrier to someone coming to faith in Christ. I'm willing to give up any preference. I'm willing to give up any freedom. I am willing to do whatever it takes, humanly speaking, knowing he can't save anyone, knowing God is the one who does it, he says, I'm willing to give up anything that is a barrier to someone else so that they can hear and see Jesus in me. You say that's true of you today? Are you willing to give up any preference in your life? Any freedom that God gives you? So that you will never be a barrier to someone hearing and seeing Jesus. Through you. you. Paul says, whatever I have to give up, I'll give it up. Whatever I have to do, I will do. I mean, that is obviously in the context of the gospel and standing firm. But Paul says, in my willing to not compromise, I'm also not willing to hold on to my rights or my prerogatives or or the things that I like. I'll give them all up if it means that someone might be saved. And what does it mean when he says he's a servant of the gospel? writes this in 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and gone often without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold. I have been naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for the churches. That's what it means to be a servant of the gospel. Servant of the gospel. Are you a servant of the gospel? Are you burdened for the people around you that don't know Christ to the extent that you would say, I'll give up any right, any freedom, any barrier, so that my life is never a hindrance for them coming to faith in Christ. God, change anything you want in here so that never, ever am I the barrier to someone coming to faith in you. And you're a servant of the gospel in such a way. Oh, you know, Dwayne just asked us to serve a bit more at church. That must be something related to, I was beaten with rods once and pelted with stones on a few occasions. Shipwrecked, spent a night and day in open sea. But sometimes when I I hear people talk about serving the Lord, and, and I hear Christians in North America doing it in a Canadian context, and they come to me with this woe is me story about serving the Lord, I'm like, wow, like, man, like. Actually, the gentleman I met with on Friday said this. An elder at his church, and he said, you know, I struggle with all these protocols, Dwayne. They said, I've got people talking about this in our church as if they're being persecuted. We have people in this world that meet in the middle of the night, walking long distances in darkness, able to gather and worship their God because their lives are at stake. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with us? I'm not saying we can't write to the government and say some of these things don't make sense and some of these things are inconsistent, whatever that would be. But this is not persecution at all. Paul says, I'm a servant of this gospel. And being a servant of this gospel means I'm burdened for people who don't know Christ and know Christ, and I won't get in the way. And being a servant of the gospel means that I am burdened for the churches. Did you hear at the end there? I daily face the pressure and concern for all the churches that are around me. I mean, this is reminiscent of Christ saying, take up your cross and follow him. In those days was when everyone heard that language, what they thought of, Christ is asking me to follow him to my death. That's what taking up the cross meant. The cross was simply, all it was in Jesus' day was a means of execution. That's all the cross was. A means of execution of torturous humiliating execution and when jesus says to the disciples take up your cross to follow me they're all thinking okay he's asking us to die what did they do they followed him what did most of them do after their resurrection after his resurrection they died horrific deaths for him some we know of in scripture some by tradition Hebrews says it this way when you're thinking of being a servant for Christ. So see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Encourage each other daily as long as it's called today so that no one may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, there's this joint pressure that's experienced here. Oh, God, we long to see those that don't know you fall in love with you. And oh, God we long to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. Who are you praying for faithfully that God would save and actively looking for open doors in your life with because you're a servant of the gospel and willing to give up anything as you stand firm in Christ to do that? And who are you constantly thinking about that you can encourage so that they'll never be hardened by sin's deceitfulness but they'll stand strong in their faith. I mean, who did you encourage this last week? Who did you text? Who did you email? Who did you call? Who did you Zoom with? Servant of the gospel. Why does Paul see this as being so important? You guys can come up to close us. Why does Paul see this as being so important? Because we were alienated. Enemies in our mind, partly because of our evil behavior. And Christ's accomplished work on our behalf, is so sufficient that when we stand before the Father one day, we will be holy, blameless, and without accusation. Praise his name. That is how saved we are. That is how effectual the blood of Jesus is. That's how glorious this gospel is, this good news that we get to proclaim both to each other as we encourage each other and all the more as we see the day approaching and to the world that is so incredibly lost, needing Him. It is this gospel of what God has done, this good news of what Christ has accomplished that we get to proclaim to the world and to each other, each of us will serve something. The gospel in Christ is the only thing truly worth serving. Will you pray with me? So God, each of us can think of areas in our own life, myself included, or we fall so short of this, God. Or we struggle. With what it means to be servants of the gospel. And Yet when we're reminded, Lord Jesus, of what you have done when we were aliens, enemies in our minds, with our evil behavior, that your work with your broken body and shed blood is enough, Jesus. That we will be wholly blameless and without accusation one day we are amazed. May we encourage each other with that good word. We may, may we take it to the world who so desperately needs good news. Peace that reconciles us with the Father by way of the Son. Because of the work of the Spirit, we ask.